The following sermon is by Jim Briggs of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. It's uh, great to see you back. I saw all your faces earlier this morning, so I uh, hope you've had a great day since this morning, a time of worship. And um, the Sunday nights are a little bit different. Um, and welcome to those of you that are joining online. They're a little bit different in that we get to, uh, it's a little more casual. We get to let our hair down a little bit. And, and it, at the end, we usually have a time for some conversation, a few questions. And so we're going to do that. Obviously, I'm not Kenny. Um, Kenny is, uh, is away enjoying some family time. And so appreciate that we can give him a little bit of time. And I'm just, I'm thankful that I can be here with you all. And we're going we're gonna to take a look. We, you know we're uh, studying uh, the Ten Commandments, and we have moved on to the Third Commandment tonight, so we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. Um, you know, during, uh, during these studies of the Ten Commandments, um, we, we've sort of, I know Kenny has shared with us the prologue, he's shared with us the First and the Second Commandment, but I thought it might be helpful just to uh, to, to imagine for a minute what's going on and, and really think about uh, who's hearing this, what's, what's happening, uh, because we, when we kind of break it up into these pieces, it, it sort of helps uh, just to give us a little bit of context to think about where we are. And so, as you recall, God's people have been gathered at the base of Mount Sinai. And they, they have a leader who's uh, 80 years old. We heard that this morning. Um, Moses. And Moses has given them the word from the Lord that the Lord God Almighty is going to come down and be with them. Um, and they are waiting for this thing to happen. And you remember that uh, there was lightning and thunder. Uh, there were earthquakes. There was fire. And a cloud descended on the top of the mountain and covered the mountain. And it says that the response of the people uh, at the, this sound of a, a, a very loud trumpet blast, all of this that's going on. Imagine this, if you will. I mean, think about yourself as a person looking up. All of this is happening. You know how scary storms can be. But in the middle of this storm, there's also this loud trumpet sound. And it says the people responded by trembling with fear. And so that's sort of the context. You also think about the fact of where these people were. They've come from Egypt. They've lived their whole lives, all of them in Egypt. Uh, they have seen this miraculous thing happen. God has brought them out of Egypt. He's crossed them over the Red Sea. And, and here he is, has told them that he is coming to them. He's coming down. And so this is all disorientating at the very least. And so as we think about this, think about what it would have been like to hear this from the Lord. And he tells Moses that he is going to speak so that the people can hear what he is telling Moses. So the people actually get to hear their Lord speak. Well, I, um, I also want to just remind you, too, that the Lord has already given his name to Moses. He's already had this encounter with Moses back in, um, in, uh, in Exodus 3, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But as I said, Kenny talked about this prologue where the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he gave ten words, ten commandments uh, to express his eternal and his perfect moral character. And this will serve to, uh, to provide principles that will govern the life of his people. He's called his people uh, to be a nation and also called his people to worship him. And Kenny walked us through the first two commandments that teach us, one, that there is only one God that we worship, the one and only true God, and that we're to worship him only in a manner that he has prescribed. So he has ruled out any other forms of worship. Uh, 
And he has given a plan. He's given a, a way that we are to come to him, that we are to worship him. And tonight we're going to look at the third commandment. And the third commandment is probably one that's very familiar to all of us. Um, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And so we've been introduced to this God, and, and from the prologue we see that he is, he is Lord, he is Yahweh, he is God, he is the ruler of all. And we also see that he has brought them out of Egypt, so he's a redeemer. He has redeemed his people out of slavery, out of bondage. And this God who his very essence, his being, his infinite being is now coming down to visit. But before we get there, I want to just take a moment and pray. So if you would, bow your head and pray with me. Well, Father God, we uh, come again into this place and we praise your holy name. We have an opportunity to worship you. And we know that as we're studying the word worship, worship includes so many different aspects of how we live our lives as, as Christians that all of our lives really are a form of worship to you when we follow your principles, when we follow your will, when we obey your commands. And Father, as we pray, as I pray uh, tonight, um, as we discuss this third commandment, what, we ask that you would just open our eyes. Help us to understand better what it is that, um, that this commandment says, what it means, what it means to you first and foremost, and what it should mean to us as your people. Father, I pray, too, that, uh, that you would guard my mouth so that as I present uh, these words tonight, they would be your words and not mine, and that as we lift up your name, it would not be in a way that profanes it. Father, I, I pray that everything we do tonight as we gather in your name would bring honor and glory to your name, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, recently I was preparing name tags uh, we have a large group of young people in their 20s from NC State that show up here on Mondays at 4 o'clock for a Bible study. And so uh, lar by large, I mean like 35 people large. Uh, it's just amazing. It's a blessing to have that many kids coming here uh, on Monday, and it seems like we pick up five more each week. So we'd love to have your prayers uh, that we could fill out the, the Family Life Center at some point with all of these students. But as I was making all of these name tags, it dawned on me that, uh, one, I, I didn't know any of these young men. I had no idea. Now, I had their first name and their second name, but I, I had no idea who they were. And the only way that I would actually get to know who they were was by actually having an encounter with them, actually getting to know them uh, over uh, lunch or, or as we got together each Monday and uh, I started to pick up on their personalities and, and idiosyncrasies, and uh, I knew them by their face, and, and we became more familiar with one another. And so this was, uh, this was an interesting thing, but, but as I said, as I've been studying this, I started thinking about that, and I thought, well, you know, this is, the, this is important because names matter, but names tell us very little about who someone is. In fact, the way we think of names in, in our culture, uh, it's just a label. It, it literally, like the name tag, is just something we hang on somebody. And maybe if you're a parent, you have a, a deeper appreciation of what it means uh, to name someone, to hang a name on someone. Because when you had a child, I know that you, like I did, spent hours and hours and hours coming up with names, lists of names. And then you started to put those names together and you started to imagine, what would it be like to call my child one of these names? And you probably walked around the house like I did, saying the names out loud over and over again, and perhaps even writing them over and over again on a piece of paper to see how they looked. And then when you finally found the right name, the name that you said, you know what, That's, that is the name, you presented that to your wife or your husband, and they had a different idea. Uh, but what's really amazing is that we didn't select names for our children based on characteristics that we observed within the first few hours or days of their life. And, and we didn't pick names based on uh, what we thought their personalities were going to be either. 
we picked a name and we hung it on our children as a label. But what's remarkable is how very quickly that name came to represent my kids. And I, I can't think of them any other way than by the names that we actually gave them. Now, what's, uh, what's really remarkable is God's name was not given to him. And that's different. Every human was given a name, uh, usually by a parent. But we think of names in a different way. We think of names, as I said, as a label. Um, and it slowly takes on the person uh, that it's attached to, the attributes, the personality people get to know. Could you imagine what it would be like uh, to have a world without names? I, I think it, uh, you know, when you, when you introduce yourself to someone, uh, the first thing that you do is you tell them your name, you hope so, and they tell you their name. Uh, but again, they, it tells us very little about the people that we've met. We have to get to know them. So as I said, our, our names are uh, more or less just labels. Uh, that's the way we think about them. Uh, but God's name is very different. In fact, in the Bible, names often held very deep significance. Uh, in the case of God's name, uh, it summed up who he was and, and what he wanted to reveal about himself. This, uh, this idea also was, was, was pretty much the way that, that Hebrews thought of names as well. The name actually uh, was, represented the person. It was, in essence, the person. So at the, uh, you remember God's name was given to Moses. And I, I want to remind us here as we think back on the burning bush. Everybody is familiar with the story. You probably heard this story uh, a million times by now if you grew up in the church. It was a favorite Sunday school story. Uh, looked great on felt board or looked good on the, on the poster board, uh, however it was displayed. But I, I want to take you back for a minute to Exodus 3. So God reveals his name to Moses in this amazing event. God had, remember, commissioned Moses to be his messenger. He was going to go to Pharaoh, and he was going to deliver his message, God's message, to Pharaoh. And then he was going to lead uh, all of God's people out of Egypt into the promised land. Uh, and immediately uh, Moses said, wait a minute, that, that is a, that's a pretty daunting Task, and he, he asked the question, who am I? Who am I to do this? Well, God answers him, but he doesn't answer him in the way that we might expect. He doesn't, doesn't answer Moses' question, who am I? He answers with a statement, I will be with you. And, and that, uh, I don't know, if I were Moses, I would wonder, you know, that, well, you didn't really answer my, my question. Who am, who am I? You said, I will be with you. And I guess the next question, though, while it seems a little strange, um, it actually makes sense in that light. If you're going to be with me, well, who, who are you? That's what Moses asked God. Who are you? And, and God reveals his answer. He says, I am who I am. I am who I am. So the name that God revealed to Moses is his personal name, I am. I am is an extraordinary statement. I am tells us that God is and was and always will be. Uh, it is, uh, it's remarkable, but that is his personal name. You know, um, in Hebrew, it was just written as four letters. Uh, it, it was written as Y-H-W-H, and if you look in your Bible right now, anytime you see uh, Lord written in a capital L and then three small capital O-R-D, that that's, takes the place of these letters. Uh, the word is Yahweh, the Bible translated as Lord. But when we see Lord written like that, and you'll notice in your Bible, sometimes Lord is capital L lowercase O-R-D, sometimes it's capital L small caps O-R-D, well, whenever you see it as uh, large capital L, small cap O-R-D, that's God's personal name. It's not a title. It's his personal name. And, and this is remarkable. So God has told Moses 
that he is the God, the one and only God. This is his personal name. And so this, this name, as I said, is very interesting because I am communicates a lot of things. It communicates the fact that God is self-sufficient. That is, he, he has no, or self-existent rather, he has no beginning, he has no end. As I said, he, he was the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He was and is and always will be. And so that communicates that I am just says I I exist. I, I, I exist. None of us can say that. We can say, I'm here today, gone tomorrow, right? Before me, there was, but God can't say that. God has always been and always will be. The other thing it says is that he is self-sufficient. That means that he's utterly independent. Nothing, he depends on nothing. He doesn't depend on you and me. He doesn't depend on anything in, this, in his creation, that God is outside of his creation. Remember, we heard this morning, Grant was talking about the fact that we, we can't know how wide the universe is. We don't know how far it goes. But one thing we do know is God is bigger than the universe. He's outside of the universe. He doesn't depend on anything. He doesn't depend on time. He doesn't depend on space. He doesn't depend on our thoughts. He doesn't depend on our prayers. God didn't need us for anything. Because before us, he lived in perfect love, a perfect loving relationship, self-sufficient as the Holy Trinity, the three and the one. Right? So he was self-sufficient and he's sovereign, uh, supremely sovereign, which means that he's superior to all. We talked about that this morning. His name is above all names. He rules everything and he's free from any external control. Well, Alec Montier uh, notes that the Lord's name is shorthand for all that he has revealed about himself with particular reference to the central revelations made through Moses and confirmed in the events of the Exodus. So God's name is God. It, 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 it speaks of his being, but it also tells us something about what he's done. So what he revealed to Moses and then what was observed about God, the fact God came down and God was able to do this remarkable thing and redeem his people from bondage, from slavery, uh, it tells us a lot about God. So the name I am contains these great truths about God's identity. He's the Holy One. He's the God of the covenant. Remember, he had introduced himself. He was, he was the God of Moses' father and of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That recalls the fact that God has always been God, even though all of these patriarchs have come and gone. But God is also a faithful God. He's a God of the covenant. And it also says that God is the redeemer. He's the deliverer. He had delivered them out of the house of slavery, it says. He's a judge. He's a providential God. He's taking care of all their needs. And he's also a God who reconciles his people to himself. Well, as I mentioned, to the Hebrew mind, uh, the name and the person were inseparable. And so therefore, to use God's name was in essence to actually touch God himself. And his name deserved the same kind of reverence and respect that God did himself. So, so highly was his name regarded by the Jews that the people refused to actually even speak his name. So why did the people, and, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you've ever gone to a Jewish publication today, for example, I was looking at an article in the Jewish Times this past week, and anytime the word God is written, it's G hyphen D. So they don't even write his name. They didn't then, they still don't. They don't speak his name. In fact, um, they would substitute whenever they would come across his name in the Bible Rather than to say his name, Yahweh, they would say Adonai, uh, Master, my, my Lord. Uh, it's a plural form of the word. It's different from just Lord, like a master, uh, a boss, but it, it meant God. And so Adonai, uh, my Lord, is how they would speak when they would come across this name. And so this is interesting. Uh, the idea that you wouldn't actually speak God's name. 
Why? Why, why would the people not want to speak God's name? Well, part of the reason can be found in this commandment, the third commandment. It's found in Exodus 20, uh, chapter 7. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn there. And so, as I said, we've seen, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Um, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, the, fourth, or the second commandment, uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or a likeness of anything that is in heaven or above. Remember, this is, his, this is how we are to worship. He tells us who we're to worship and how we're to worship. And then three, it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It goes on to say, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So you'll note there, uh, that uh, every time you see the name, the, the word Lord, it's, it's written in all caps. So this is the name Yahweh. So they didn't speak God's name for fear of misusing it. Because, I mean, again, look at what happens if you misuse the name. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. However, God's divine name appears uh, almost 7,000 times in the Old Testament. So far from forbidding his people from saying his name, it's pretty clear that he wants his people to say his name. I mean, it's written throughout Scripture. Imagine for a minute uh, if you could never use the name of your husband or your wife. What would that be like? How challenging would that relationship be? And what does that tell us about God? What does that tell us about the fact that he's given us his name? Well, it tells us that God wants us to be in a relationship with him. He, he, he desires that we were, would be in a loving relationship with him. And so he gives us his name to use. Now, here's something else that I think is remarkable. We talked about this this morning, the fact that God is infinite. He is an infinite being. We, we can't comprehend uh, the person of God because he's infinite. Infinite. But think about this, the God who is infinite also wants to be in a personal relationship. He, he told Moses and the people he was coming down. Can you imagine how, I mean, that's mind-blowing. And it points to another significant event that we'll see as we draw, draw closer to December, as we remember that God did again come down as Jesus as a baby in the manger. And so this is, this is mind-blowing stuff when we think about it. But if the people of God went too far in their prohibition of speaking the name of God, then I would argue that Christians and non-Christians uh, don't go far enough today. Um, in fact, we think of on God's name w way too casually, uh, if at all. So the point of this commandment is, uh, is that God will hold those unrighteous who take his name in vain. There is a, there is a penalty for that. Um, a more literal translation of this passage would read, you shall not lift up the name of your Lord God as an empty or false purpose. All right, so you shall not lift up the name of the Lord, your God, for empty or false purpose. In other words, we're not to use God's name carelessly or thoughtlessly or in a flippant way as if he is worthless or he doesn't exist. Now, usually we think of the third commandment as a prohibition against uh, swear words. Uh, if, if you're like me, I mean, that's, that's something that we uh, have heard for you know, our whole lives. Um, and it's amazing how quickly uh, children hear that word and, and adopt it. Uh, in fact, the whole world, um, when they hear the name God, very often they, they begin using it as a swear word. Why is that? Why do you think that is? It's, it's, a, it's a remarkable thing, but it, it, it actually, this commandment actually has uh, a, a much deeper meaning when you see it in context. There are several ways, actually, that the people uh, of the Old Testament would have used the Lord's name. Um, 
And, and as we explore those, it'll help us to sort of see uh, or have a better understanding of really what the point of this commandment is. Because while profanity, while using the Lord's name or, or Jesus Christ as a swear word or an exclamation, um, while that is covered under this commandment, that's not really the sole purpose of this commandment. In fact, in his book, Old Testament Law, Dale Patrick writes, the scope of the command is linked to various uses of the divine name in ancient Israel. One called upon the name in prayer, hmm, prayer and praise, and one pronounced the name in solemn oaths and prophesied in the name, and whenever the name was used, it could be abused, end quote. So whenever the name was used in all of those things, whether it was prayer and praise or uh, prophecy or swearing a solemn oath, it could be used or misused rather. And so there was a, a prohibition against that. I, I think all four of these uh, examples will help to assist us as we consider the ways that we may violate his commandment. So let's briefly look at each one. Um, if you're taking notes, and by the way, I'm sorry, I didn't have a handout for you. Um, that's one of those things that the pros know how to do. And uh, so you'll have another handout when Kenny's back next week. So uh, if you've got a pencil or a pen and a pad of paper, write down profanity, prayer and praise, promises, and prophecy. Profanity, prayer and praise, promises, and prophecy. So profanity. Well, like I said, this is, this is what most of us think of when we think about the third commandment. And as Christians, we do need to keep a close watch on our language, don't we? Everyone that has been on the belt line at one time or another has been tempted to call down divine judgment on somebody in another car at, at some point. I remember one time I was a passenger in the car my grandmother was driving in downtown Atlanta, and she decided she was going to make a left-hand turn. So she put her blinker on and stopped to make her left-hand turn. The problem was she, she, didn't, she didn't go into the middle turn lane. She stopped in the passing lane. And so cars were screeching to a halt and horns were blaring. And I can only imagine how many times the Lord's name was uttered and not in a helpful prayer. So it's, it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction. I mean, we know, we've all been there, right? We know what it's like. One of the things that's fascinating to me is that when people become Christians, uh, if they had salty language before, you, you notice that that language starts to moderate to the point that at some point, they don't have that salty language anymore. And one of the things that they used to say was probably uh, one of these instances where they took the name's Lord, Lord's name in vain. So if it was only about that, then many of us could say, well, I, you know, I got that one licked. That's, I got that down. You know, it seems that you can't watch television or see a movie or read a book um, where God's name or Jesus' name isn't, isn't used inappropriately. You can hear it on school playgrounds. You can hear it across tables in retirement centers. It spans all ages. And it really just kind of shows how godless our culture has become. What we say in the heat of the moment is perhaps a better indication of our spiritual condition uh, than how many times we show up for church or whether or not we carry around our Bible. Even if we're careful with our language, how do we respond towards others who take the name of the Lord in vain? Do we give the Spirit an opportunity to convict those by, by just telling someone, sharing with someone how hurtful it is for us to hear the name of our Father disrespected in such a way? By remaining silent, are we giving tacit approval, or are we just simply communicating that the Lord's name really isn't worth defending? And so it, it's important that we do think about Profanity. It is important that we do think about how we use God's name in everyday language. Profanity is simply taking something that is sacred or holy and treating it as common or secular. 
And so taking the Lord's name in vain in this way is very much profanity, according to that definition. Well, God is jealous for his name. And we've heard that. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if you've noticed this, but as we talk about the Ten Commandments and as we're studying worship in the morning, uh, I wonder if you heard this morning as, as Grant was sharing some of the points about worship, the echoes of the Ten Commandments and what he was saying, who we are to worship, how we are to worship, and the fact that the name of God is supreme. It's above all other names. And so it's interesting that we have this opportunity to study this from slightly different angles, have a slightly different perspective that all point to the same truth, that God is jealous for his name. God will be glorified, and he will work to make sure that he is glorified. So profanity. Uh, another way, though, is in prayer and praise. Prayer and praise. We recognize Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, uh, 5, chapters 5 and 7, how it's possible to actually use God's name in a prayer uh, and making a meaningless public ritual of empty phrases uh, and words rather than actually communicating with our Father. But there's also a darker side to this prayer. So, Prayer could be used and was often used in ancient times for evil purposes. In ancient times, many people believed that they could unlock the powers of the supernatural simply by lifting up the name uh, of, uh, of God in magical incantations. And now, you may recall the story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible of the seven sons of a, of a Jewish priest, uh, chief priest named Skeva. Uh, this occurs in Acts 19. And uh, just to give you sort of a frame of reference here, Paul is in Ephesus. He's been preaching there uh, and teaching uh, about the kingdom. And uh, while he was doing that, he's also performing many miracles and wonders. And so as he did this, it says uh, that, uh, again, this is God's word. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. That's Acts 19, 11, and 12. Whenever Paul performed these miracles or wonders, he always did it in the name of Jesus Christ. And so as they noticed Paul doing this, these seven men started to have an idea well, we should do that. I mean, Paul has become extraordinarily popular, and we should probably adopt some of what he's doing in order to do what we're trying to do. And so they started to, to do the same thing. And you remember what happened. They went around town, and, and they're trying to drive out evil spirits simply by saying, in the name of Jesus Christ, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And then one day, they came across an evil spirit who answered them. And he said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And you remember the man who had the evil spirit overpowered all seven of the men, and he gave them such a beating that they fled naked and bleeding. And so this is a, I think this is a great illustration of how God's name could be used inappropriately as an incantation or a, uh, a lucky charm or a, a magic spell. And I wonder if any of us have ever done that. I mean, I'm not saying that we try and do what the seven sons did, but how many times have you said a prayer for your football team? How many times have you uh, been convinced that you need to pray or you need to act a certain way the week leading up to a big event in order for it to go well. You know, if I, if I, if I, okay, this is the week that I'm going to, I'm really going to behave. And if I do all these things, then I'll bet the business deal comes through. Well, that's the same thing. That's what we're doing. We're taking something that is holy 
and we're trying to use it to manipulate a situation. And so that is, uh, that's how Christians might misuse God's name in the form of a prayer. So as Christians, do we do that? Do you and I do that? Are we incorrectly using God's name as a prayer? You know, I talked to somebody the other day that was talking about the fact that if they miss a prayer in the morning, they have a bad day. Well, I, I knew what he meant. But there's some element of what we're talking about in that, that the prayer has suddenly become kind of a good luck charm. Now, I'm not discounting the fact that when we pray, and we pray earnestly, that God will answer our prayers. But I am just giving a warning here that we really need to think about how we pray to God. You know, we begin our prayers with Heavenly Father, and we end them with, in the name of Jesus, and it's what's in the middle that we have to really think about. Are our prayers me-centered? Are they prayed in such a way that, that we're trying to manipulate God to our own advantage? Or are they God-centered? Are we praying that God would use us in some way to bring glory to him? And so it's important that we think about that. It's important that we think about how we pray. You know, another way that we empty his name of meaning is in the way that we worship. And again, we've, we've talked all about worship for a couple of weeks here in the morning. And as Grant's been teaching, I wonder if you, like me, have been thinking about worship any differently. I'll tell you, one of the things that uh, we talked about this in life class this morning, as we worship, as I worship, and I start to really focus on what we're doing, as I focus on the words of the songs that we sing, as I focus on the prayer, as I really focus on the sermon, I mean, it is overwhelming. I mean, and in our culture, this is just commonplace. We are instant gratification. We are passive observers. We want it now. We want it explained. We want to be in and out. We got lunch on our mind. We got other things to do today. So how are we treating worship? Are we treating worship in a way that brings honor to God? Some of the things that were brought up today in our discussion was, do I get up early enough in the morning so that I can dress the kids and I can have breakfast and I have enough time, I have a long enough on-ramp that we don't have this chaos? And when I arrive at church, I'm ready for worship. I've already got my heart and my mind tuned to God. And then when we get here, are we careful to pay attention? Are we reverent when we come into this place and when we speak to one another? You know, this brings up an important point. Profanity is not just using swear words. It's taking anything that God has attached his name to and treating it casually or carelessly. It's abusing brothers and sisters in Christ. It's trying to manipulate situations. It's taking lightly God's word or prayer or a worship service. And so we have to be very careful as Christians. And, you know, one of the things I think that's really interesting is we've just gone through a year where we've been prohibited from doing a lot of the things that we normally would do as a church body. Are we zealous for that opportunity to come back and worship, to be together, to be with one another, to spend time with our brothers and sisters in Christ? So that's, uh, that's something that we can be thinking about. So we've talked about profanity and prayers and praise and now promises. Promises, another common misuse of God's name was to swear false oaths. In the Bible, people would often use God's name to convince others that they were truthful or they would use it as, at the conclusion of a business deal. You know, court scenes in, in, Amer in American television and movies, they show people, you know, lifting their hand up and swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Well, that, that's kind of the picture of taking an oath, a solemn oath. Numbers 32 says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds from his mouth. Well, it's not wrong 
to make vows or oaths. For example, Christians make oaths and vows in matters of great uh, and lasting consequence. Marriage comes to mind, and maybe even a court proceeding. Otherwise, however, as we think about promises, and that's what taking an oath is, I promise to do this. According to Jesus' teaching, we should simply let our yes be yes and our no be no. But again, we have to think a little bit more deeply about this. When we give our commitment, when we make a promise to someone, are, are, we, are we committed to that? Do we follow through? And I know I'm guilty. I mean, I've made promises before that my schedule wouldn't allow me to keep. And while I felt bad about it, did I really realize that what I was doing was dishonoring the Lord? And so we need to be very careful about promises. Well, finally, let's look at prophecy. God's name was misused in connection with false prophecy. A prophet was someone called by God to communicate his message to the world. And a prophet was required to deliver God's word accurately. The prophet Micaiah uh, captures this well in 1 Kings twenty-two fourteen, where he says, As surely as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. False prophets of the Old Testament were liars claiming to speak for God in order to deceive people or to manipulate them, to serve their own interests. False prophecy is an attempt to use God's name in a way that advances our personal agenda. Well, we see this today, don't we? I mean, how many different times have you seen a political candidate get up and use God's name to endorse uh, uh, something that they're trying to sell? I don't mean to pick on political candidates, but it just is so familiar in fact, you have candidate, on, on one side candidates that will say God, um, God prohibits abortion. And on another, you have candidates that say abortion is, is really something that God wants us to do. He's given us free will to do it, and we need to protect people. And so it's something that we need to do. I mean, it's extraordinary. But anytime we use God's name uh, in such a way, uh, we're at real danger of misusing it. There are many churches today that will twist or misinterpret God's word. They, uh, they do this in a way that tries to manipulate others. They want to try and get people to come in, fill the seats, or they want to get people to try and do something, or maybe it's just a selfish agenda. But whenever we presume to speak God's word, whether we're teaching a life class or leading a Bible study, a group, uh, or sharing the gospel with a friend over a cup of coffee, we need to take great care in how we handle his word. Because speaking the name of God and not taking it seriously is an offense to God. So we don't take lightly our preparation if we're called into one of these ministries. Because we will be, as the commandment says, we'll be held accountable. So the command is clear. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain or an empty or light or easy manner. Now the question that comes to mind is this. Why? Why is this so important to God? Why is his name so important? It's third on the list, so I mean, it must be pretty important to God. It's obviously something that he cares a great deal about. Well, it may be helpful to try and understand this commandment by considering what God says in Exodus 22. So turn to Exodus 22 if you don't have it already, where God says, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord, your God. So in all of these cases, what we need to be thinking about is the fact that to lift up the name of God is not to claim power over God. Think about how all of those cases was really the idea of using God in some way, manipulating his name in some way, or calling upon his name in some way in order to serve our purpose. So to lift up the name of God is not to claim power over God. God says you cannot use me for your purposes, whether they're good or bad. Think about that. I mean, even good things. We can't, we can't manipulate God, even for the good things. By calling on his name, we're placing, uh, they, they are placing themselves not over God and his power, but under God and subject to his will, his control, and his purposes. So when we recognize that this is the Lord our God, and he is supreme. There's no name above his. His name is supreme. Then we realize that, well, we're under that. We're never over God. 
And so any way that we treat God's name that shows that we're trying to take control of God is an offense to him. The importance of this command is that we don't try and take the name, take control of the name or the person of God. God is the one who is in control. He is God. He is Lord. He may allow us to call upon his name. In fact, many times he says, call upon my name, right? But we only do this in a way that's fitting. Otherwise, we'll be held accountable. You know, I think the greatest need for people, uh, the people of God, is to understand who God is and who we are in relationship to him. If we really knew the power, his power to create and destroy, would we continue to misuse his name? If we truly knew him as a sovereign God over all things, would we offer prayers and praise in such a casual and careless manner? If we knew God, we would fear him. We talked about that this morning, fearing God. That is to be in reverent awe of his holiness and to honor him as God of great glory, of majesty, of purity, and of power. When God revealed himself at Mount Sinai through thunder and lightning, with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, it says the people trembled. When was the last time you trembled before God? They trembled because of his great power. Surely to think of God in this way would affect the way that we use his name. Our only response, and again, this is something that we heard this morning, our only response when we encounter God, the one true God, should be worship. To treat God with indifference or contempt is to show we really We really don't know him. God's name is supreme. He is Lord of Lord. He is King of Kings. His name is above all names. And one day, one day the Bible tells us that all will bow before his name and confess Jesus Christ Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember, God is bringing glory to himself. And one day, We will all bow, we will all confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we lift up God's name, not in profanity, certainly, not in empty promises, yes, in prophecy, that is, speaking God's word in truth, right? Using God's name. You know, this idea of lifting God's name up, it's it's sort of has a twofold meaning. It's it was used in legal proceedings, kind of like we do today when we utter God's name in a solemn oath. But it also has the meaning of any time God's name crosses our lips, whenever we speak about him, we need to be very careful about our words. The reason that we do this and the reason that we pray, we think about how we pray and we praise is because we want to be in communion with him. And you know what? God longs to be in communion with us. As I said, God is a is a personal God. He wants to have a loving relationship with us. And he desires to receive our worship. He created us for worship. The Ten Commandments so far is nothing nothing more than just this is how and why you worship. But we always, always need to be mindful of how we use his name. So some applications as we think about this. As we think about, obviously, our language, um, are, are we being careful with our language? You know, to, to maybe press a little bit more, do you use words like gosh? Do you type in OMG ever? Do you use God's name in sort of a flippant way? Do you make jokes at the expense of God? These are all things that we need to think about. Um, Anything that God's name is attached to, we need to be very careful about how we think about it, how we speak about it. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, God's church, God's word, the ordinances, the, you know, think about, think about that when we come in for a baptism or we come in to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Is your mind and your heart ready to participate in that, to really truly honor God's name? 
all of his names and titles. You know, this is, as I said, Yahweh is his personal name, but there are hundreds of names for God in the Bible. Each one of them gives us a different glimpse as to who he is, a different attribute of God. Do we pray to God using those names, recognizing how incredibly wonderful his name is? Well, those are some things I wanted to just share with you this morning. That's been what I have gleaned from my study this week, and I hope it's been helpful to you as it has to me. One of the things it's done for me is it's caused me to be more sensitive to the things that perhaps I take for granted of worship, of prayer, of Bible study, of Bible teaching, of using God's name, how I treat my brothers and sisters. All of those things are contained within this commandment. And again, there is a warning here because God will not hold that person guiltless who takes his name in vain. The good news is God's done something about that. Even if we have broken this commandment, anytime we have sinned, we know that we have hope because God sent his son, Jesus Christ. God came down. The infinite God came down in the form of a man who lived a perfect life, a life that we couldn't live, to die on a cross to take the punishment for the sins that we could not pay for. There was no way that, you know, it's just like, it's just like the Israelites. They could not escape from Egypt. They had to be freed. God led them out. He delivered them. He redeemed them. And he's redeemed us through the blood of Christ on the cross. And Jesus was resurrected and he ascended. And because he ascended, it shows that God approved of his sacrifice. And it gives us right to the inheritance of eternal life. A life where we can spend all eternity worshiping God. To his glory and for his namesake. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for just this time to share some thoughts, to spend time in studying your, uh, your word, to spend time really focusing on this commandment. And Father, I pray that, um, like me, that as we have unpacked some of the thoughts here, that uh, they have maybe helped us to think about how we approach you, how we address you, how we use your name, and how we, how we perceive everything that your name is attached to. And so, Father, I pray that... Um, today that, uh, that even in this, in this message that I have not in any way misrepresented your word and that I have not in any way profaned your name. Father, we love you and we just want to bring honor and glory to you. We thank you that we were created to worship you. Father, teach us how. Help us to, uh, to worship you in spirit and in truth. Open our eyes, Father. Open our hearts. Give us courage to live the life that you have called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.